This episode is brought to you by Aircraft Accessories of Oklahoma. When it's time for an aircraft component inspection, overhaul, repair, or replacement, you need experienced technicians you can trust and friendly service you can count on. Aircraft Accessories of Oklahoma, a family-owned business since 1959, delivers just that. Our techs have real-world experience and provide sales, service, and overhaul for piston engine aircraft accessories. We also have limited turbine capabilities such as fuel pumps, starter generators, and prop governors. And we can overhaul propellers ranging from fixed pitch to turbine. Propeller pickup and delivery service is available. And one more thing, mention this podcast to receive 5% off your next sale, service, or overhaul. Visit aircraftaccessoriesofok.com. This podcast is sponsored by Genesis Aerosystems, a Moog company and leading provider of autopilots for rotor and fixed-wing aircraft. The Genesis STEC 5000 is the latest digital autopilot providing increased safety plus decreased pilot workload. It's being certified for Part 23 and Part 25 retrofit aircraft such as high-performance turboprop and turbine jet aircraft. To learn more about the STEC 5000, visit genesis-aerosystems.com. This week on Hangar Talk, big changes in the FBO world. And how about airplane owners with an LED taillight and an ADSB receiver? We find out once and for all, are winglets really more efficient? And we have new rules for crews making international flights. Finally, some good news for one person and sad news for the rest of you. Somebody has won the AOPA sweepstakes RV10. It's probably not you. Or me. Are you ready to do some <laughs> anger talk, Ian? I'm ready. From AOPA, your freedom to fly. This is Hangar Talk. Have a 1056 turn right, heading 130, contact final 13.24. With your hosts, Ian Twombly and David Tulitz. This is Hangar Talk. Welcome to Hangar Talk, everybody. I'm Ian Twombly. And I'm David Tulis. David, our guest this week, Katie Ryder. This is an old friend of mine. Katie lives up in Alaska. She wrote a story for AOPA sometime last year about climate change and, and how pilots are uniquely positioned to monitor the effects of climate change, especially up in Alaska. Well, that's going to be interesting, Ian. I'm glad you caught up with her, and I really want to know a little bit more about that. Uh, tip of the hat real quick to one of our other uh, Hangar Talk you know, participants is uh, Robert De Laurentiis, who did some air testing, and it wasn't climate change, but it was also environmental during a polar flight. Yeah, that's true. Yeah, and in fact, Katie's going to talk a lot about glaciers and being able to see the melt over the years, which obviously airplanes are really good at. But before we get to that, let's start with the news. First, the FBO world. Now, I know a lot of pilots don't like to go to Signature and Atlantic because their fees can be higher and that sort of thing. But like you and I were talking before we started recording, they do have some nicer facilities. And some of those assets have drawn the attention of investors, and both Signature and Atlantic appear poised to have ownership changes. Yeah, Ian, and the bigger news for that, as far as I'm concerned, is that Signature really was ready to turn a deal with some folks who are related to Microsoft co-founder Bill Gates. That didn't happen. Something else happened instead. But in the midst of all of this, we see that Atlantic Aviation, who basically they have 70 locations into 200 signature locations, they're up for bid too. And this is interesting. And I was just curious, I wonder why that is. 
Yeah. So like you said, Signature, 200 locations. The Bill Gates, in fact, that news happened quick enough that I, I kind of missed it almost. I blinked. It's like the, the Bill Gates group had been trying for a while, apparently, to buy Signature. Signature rejected the takeover offers and then agreed. And then just a few days later, another suitor came in, the Global Infrastructure Partners. They own Edinburgh Airport in Scotland and also a piece of Gatwick in London. So big infrastructure dollars there. Signature kind of fits into that mold. But then Atlantic, I guess, had had considered selling before the pandemic and is now looking to, again, McGuire owns them, McGuire Infrastructure Corporation. They're saying Atlantic could be worth $4 billion. Well, the interesting news on that, Ian, is that they based that model on the signatures cash for, for debt deal. Basically, they kind of Atlantic, a competitor to Signature, based their value on what Signature said was was their value, how they tallied that up. Yep. So, you know, even in that world, they're basically they're running in the same circles. They're using the same structure to, to evaluate themselves. And, you know, let's face it, those are nice facilities. And if you have a corporate aircraft or, you know, something like a King Air, you definitely want to have that kind of a facility to you know, stow your airplane in if weather bad weather is coming in. Uh, there are nice facilities. You know, the restrooms are good. You can actually take a break in there. You can, and the, and the FBO, mm-hmm. relax. They have conference rooms. There are, there's a lot to like about these bigger FBOs, Ian. It's not just about, you know, that they're a little bit more expensive than mom and pop places generally, but there's more and more amenities. And I like those, I like those fresh cookies, to be honest with you. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> we get those at Frederick, right? Signature location. That's right. I will say, you know, that this this happened, boy, 10, 15, 20 years ago, something like that, where there were some ownership changes with Atlantic and Signature and, you know, Landmark and some others. And, I, you know, there weren't a lot of, I would say, service changes at that time. So I don't think people should expect a lot of that. But what we did find was consolidation. So I, I would not be surprised if, you know, new owners, there's a new focus maybe on expansion or consolidation which can definitely be a bad thing, I think, for, for the industry because it drives up prices. So we'll have to keep an eye on that. Right. And actually, uh, to, uh, something you and I were chatting about, about before we got on the air, you know, when I had my Mooney and it was when I had it, it was based in Atlanta. It was at Peachtree Cab Airport and Signature controlled the tie downs in that part of the field on that on that ramp. They control the tie downs and really they, they could charge a little bit more than the county charge. And they did. But again, I mean, it was a, a closed gated area. It was very secure versus other parts of the airfield, which might not have been as secure. So it's a little bit of a trade-off, but it does trickle down to sometimes the tie-downs or the hangars, you know, that are controlled by one of these FBOs. Yeah. All kinds of stuff. Yeah, that's right. So, hey, kind of on the other end of things, which is value-based stuff um, for pilots. And the other end of an airplane, as a matter of fact. That's right. And the other end of the airplane. That's right. UAvionics, we've we've talked about them a few times. They've come out with some really cool, I would say, innovative stuff for ADS-B and panel mounts and some other things. So you've heard of the Tail Beacon. We've talked about that before. That UAvionics has now come out with the Tail Beacon X, which is a little bit of a beefed-up We'll call it ADSB out transponder, and it's TSO'd, so that means that folks can get the get this tail beacon installed in their aircraft. It's, it's an LED light and a 1090 megahertz ADSB out transponder, and it only weighs 140 grams, 140 grams. It doesn't take up any panel space at all. It incorporates its own antennas, and it really simplifies the path to ADSB compliance. 
for a lot of aircraft, and it also has a Mode S capability. So this is kind of a neat device. And, you know, we looked up how much did it cost for just an LED light at Aircraft Sprucian, and it's between, you know, $90 and $250. But this whole entire unit that we're looking at is $2,499. So, yeah, it's a couple of grand over that, but we're getting ADSB out. Yeah, that's right. So you do get a little bit offset. That's nice from the LED. But like you mentioned, it's got ADSB, and so it, it has the GPS source, which is great. Now, the difference being between the normal tail beacon and tail beacon X is that X, this new one, is the 1090. So that means, you know, international flying and some other benefits. So that's, I think, why you're going to see the the you know, increased cost. But a lot of people were waiting for, I think, cheaper 1090 solutions. And it looks like Uavionics has got one. Yeah. And when you talk about international flights, you know, here based in the States, uh, we're talking about Canada or Mexico, uh, Central America, the islands, that kind of thing. So this is a pretty good option for aircraft owners who haven't already got their ADSB solution set in stone. I wish I'm hoping they would have by now since it was January of last year. Or maybe it's time for an upgrade, and this would be a decent upgrade with an LED tail light. Yeah, yeah, I'm with you. So, hey, I want to move on to kind of something a little fun that actually you were involved in this week, and that is a Tamarack fly-off. Now, winglets, besides looking really cool, actually do have some benefits. So Tamarack is a company that, that has created winglets for the Cessna CJ series of aircraft, and their Atlas Active Winglet system has been put on a number of airplanes, but never really, you know, they make lots of claims and we see claims all the time from, you know, everybody making all kinds of airframe mods, but Tamarack and, and AOPA, we went on to put this to the test. And so there's a bit of a fly off. And there was a fly off. I was happy to participate in that. Mike Collins, kudos to him. He organized all of this. I was on the non winglet airplane that is owned by Mike Laver, who is a an earth rounder. Mike Collins and Mike Mike Laver actually went around the world several years ago in a in a Mitsubishi MU2. But let's talk about the Cessna Citation. So the active winglet in is not just the winglet that that we're familiar with seeing on some of the commercial airlines. It's and it's actually an active winglet. So there's another control surface that makes the wing a little bit longer and it also articulates. So the point is, uh, and again, I'm not a jet pilot, but I learned so much on this trip that I'm going to let our podcast listeners know just a teensy little bit of it. So the whole goal was to get higher quicker in a, in a jet for more efficiency. And so that was, that was the premise. Now we loaded both of these aircraft as evenly as we could, you know, with, with, with everything that we had. Yeah. To the point where you, you put an extra 200 pounds in the Tamarack airplane in order to keep it even, right? Right. And the, the Tamarack equipped aircraft had 200 more pounds. That's correct. And so the point was we, that we, we knew that that airplane would likely get to 41,000 feet, which is the sweet spot quicker. And so we recorded the time to climb and we recorded the time at the top of the climb. And I'm not a jet pilot, but Ian, I learned a lot about turbine inlet temperatures, you know, outside temperatures, you know, for, for the atmosphere, which greatly affects all that. We're talking about angle of attack. That's pretty critical that high up. I mean, there's a fine line between climbing and, and actually really being inefficient and using more fuel just to get a little bit higher up. But it was a lot of fun, and I want to uh, tip the hat really to the Tamarack founder, Nick Gita, who is also 
Nick Guido is also, he has a tie to Georgia. He went to Georgia Tech. Oh. And so folks know I'm from Atlanta. And I told Nick that, you know, I went to University of Georgia for a couple of years, but he still like. I hope me. he went for, did he go for engineering? I hope if he, he went did. to Georgia Tech, well, right? Okay, yeah, engineering and aerospace. And so he actually has been in the aerospace industry for a while. And he had this idea. And, and he's he has, he actually told me in some of his backstory, Nick's backstory, he ended up at, at, uh, at I'll mispronounce it, but as an aviat. Our Aviat Husky. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yep. Aviat. Get, help get Aviat uh, with some of the new aircraft on board, some of the tail draggers that people love so much. And so he's got great experience in the aviation world and just had this idea. These Cessna citations, a single pilot citation is a very popular aircraft in and any kind of way to make them more efficient. That might be the next generation of bargain finds, if you will. If you're looking to move someplace, you know, move yourself and a few people across the country, um, that it really is the way to go. And it's a highly capable aircraft made even more capable by the wingless. But now I don't I don't know if we should spoil the whole thing before folks read it in the magazine. Well, I I want to talk about it a little bit. Yeah, because some of the findings I think are interesting. Now, you guys didn't take exact routes because. Oh, yeah, this is key. Yeah. Yeah. Maine to Florida, which for CJ is a heck of a long trip. And believe it or not, the Tamarack airplane did make it nonstop. Nonstop. So Maine to Florida nonstop. They flew. Let me see. 1,292 miles without a stop. And so you guys had to go inland a little bit. You flew about 110 miles farther. You know, speed, okay, fine. Speed is close enough. We're not so interested in speed. What we're interested in is fuel burn. And so even though you, you know, so there is a little bit of a, a distance gap there. So, that you know, there's, there's 110 miles of, you guys flew 110 miles farther. But burned 155 gallons more fuel so that's that's really significant right and so what we had to do in and this is a, a good takeaway for jet pilots as well as folks like me who are like basically you know bfr pilots instrument students there was a lot of flight planning involved in this and there was some weather moving across the east coast and thinking about how high could we get and how long would it take us to get there? And then how much fuel did we burn to get to that really efficient altitude? There was just simply no way the non-winglet citation could get there and sustain that with without basically and, and, and keep going all the way to Florida without landing for fuel. We had to stop in Columbia, South Carolina for fuel. Hence, that's why we went further inland. Mm -hmm. That's where the routes differed. Now, we had a super quick turnaround for fuel at Columbia Aviation at Columbia Airport in South Carolina. We were basically rolling back to the taxiway after 15 minutes, which is super quick. That's impressive, yeah. Yeah, and I was I was logging a lot of this with uh, screenshots on an iPad running for flight and, uh, and logging, you know, how long it took to, to take off and climb and, and you know, descend and land. Here's the bottom line. The non-winglet airplane, we had to stop for fuel. That put us at least 15 minutes behind. And the Tamarack active winglet equipped Citation Jet basically was landing in Palm Beach, Florida, while we were passing Jacksonville, Florida. So I told Nick, I said, hey, man, we were like one state behind you. Yeah. And really, that was the real world scenario. We were one state behind them because of the efficiency that they had. 
And they were celebrating. They, they, they landed. They celebrated with champagne. They didn't leave any for us. Oh, no. Well, you guys were the losers. Yeah, well, you know, no but... champagne I, for the losers. And, uh, <laughs> and, and, and the of Winglet Plane is owned by Wick Zimmerman, and so, uh, who's also a great guy. And he lives out on the West Coast. And so I said, hey, you know, I thought that winners, you know, bought the first round for the losers, you know? And they're like, who said that? And I said, well, I just made it up. Yeah, that's right. right. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So that is very cool. I mean, it's neat that you guys got to do that because, like I said, you know, so often companies make claims and it's like, oh, is there, is there any validity to this claim whatsoever? You don't know. And so to see it happen in real life like that, like you said, a state, you know, difference plus the fuel burn, that's pretty amazing. So very cool story. The full thing, you know, there's a kind of an abridged version online now. And then you'll see the full thing later uh, when it comes out in the magazine. So a lot of fun. And we did a, we did some air to airs yesterday around the Frederick area. And oh, a real quick shout out to Dave Hirschman, who was uh, is key in organizing this. And then he flew that non winglet citation like it was an F eighteen fighter. I got to tell you what there was, and there was a lot of coordination with Chris Hanna, who was basically one of the pilots on board for the trip, but also because he was teaching Mike a little bit more about the airplane. And then Chris learned a lot uh, from Dave during the air to airs and it was really interesting we had a great day up in in frederick and i think that the pictures are going to be beautiful so when that magazine piece comes out y'all stay tuned cool okay hey so a couple bits of news left here so real quick coronavirus tests you've probably heard about this in the broader media but if you are going to travel internationally and you come back to the states even as a citizen now you will be required to get a negative covid test within three days of entry so Quick trips to the Bahamas, Mexico, Canada, you know, I mean, hopefully you're not going to Canada this time of year. Hopefully you're going to Mexico or the Bahamas, you know, but those will now require COVID tests to come back. Uh, enough said, Ian. Any more uh, folks who want to? Re- <laughs> uh, I've had I've had a bunch of COVID tests that to do travel. I, I did a COVID test before I traveled, and I expect to take another one in a few days as well. But for folks who haven't had one, as long as you can organize and schedule one, and the, a lot of these drive-through. Now, options here in the States are pretty efficient, I might say. It's nothing to be afraid of. doesn't hurt like the first ones. Apparently, they, folks would use these Q-tips, and let's just not go into details, but apparently it was, it was, it was you know, less than fun. Unpleasant. Yeah, yeah unpleasant to say. But, it, but it's not that big a deal now, and you can actually log those tests um, online with, uh, with some apps and all, keep it handy should you have to produce that kind of data. Mm-hmm. Also, and if you're on a third class, second or first class medical, I mean, you got to log that stuff. I, I do myself. Yeah. So, you know, one thing to keep in mind is, especially when you're traveling to a place like Mexico, depending on where you go or, or the Bahamas or other places in the Caribbean, you know, tests might not be readily available. I mean, you're flying to an out island in the Bahamas. I would guess you're not going to be able to find a test. So, you know, my advice is check with a company that's doing this kind of stuff regularly, you know, Air Journey, Caribbean Sky Tours, you know, all these, the places, companies that go into Mexico, it's like, work with them. They're going to know where tests are available. Air Journey, I know specifically, has organizing tests for their clients. So if you feel like you still want to go to one of these places, definitely still do it. But just keep in mind that you're going to have to get the tests and really study up on the procedures because, you know, you don't want to land back in Florida or cross the border in New York or something like that from Canada and be denied entry. That's just not not a good place to be. And speaking of better places to be, I wish I was in in the position of Aaron Benedetti, who was in the exact right place to win the Sweeps Vans Aircraft RV-10, Ian. Yeah, so Aaron's a lucky guy. He won the RV-10, like you said. He's also an airline pilot, so I know, you know, 
this happens every time an airline pilot wins the airplane. It's like, oh, he already gets to fly, you know. But this guy's legit. Big time GA chops. So a very deserving winner, I think, and a cool ruse out there in California. Yeah, and folks were even texting me, my good buddy, Colin Graham, who's a balloon pilot and also a commercial pilot out of Montana. Hi, Colin. I think you listen to the podcast, and we appreciate you. Colin said, yeah, you know, hey, Dave T., uh, I'm looking to win that airplane. It was, uh, you know, the Sunday night before the giveaway in California. But Colin and others tracked that aircraft down, and it's getting harder and harder to pull that ruse off. <laughs> he tracked it down in, in yeah. Livermore, California, and I was like, he said, man, I'm in Montana. I don't think it's going to be me. But I did want to give our folks um, a quick update on Wade Sheely, who won the, the Super Cub on floats, skis, and Tundra tires out in South Carolina a couple years ago. I caught up with him over the weekend and we had a great chat over the phone and he hasn't flown the aircraft all that much, but he still has it. He has it. He's 84 years old, you know, and it's a great aircraft and some of the sweeps winners here, we probably need to catch back up to the rest of them and do a, a more updated roll call. I think the last one is a few years old, but these are awesome aircraft and I really can't wait to the next one. Yeah. So we'll, we won't give away what it is yet. But we will say it's in process. The plan is set. And, you know, we'll see if there's any shows this year. If there are, you can come out, check it out in person. It will be there. But, yeah, new new airplane is in process. You're going to love it. But in the meantime, congrats to Aaron. Absolutely. Congrats to Aaron. Fly the heck out of that airplane, that, uh, that red and black RV-10. It's a super aircraft. I got to land it a few times. I got to do some air-to-airs with it. I am in NB. <laughs> All right. Hey, speaking of envy, imagine a life. You live in central Alaska in the shadow of Denali. You got a cub of your own on that you fly on floats and skis in the winter, and you're living the life, right? So this is Katie, our guest this week. She's got, you know, she lives the life, like I said, there in Talkeetna. Float instructor, you know, general sort of CFI, and she's going to talk to us about climate change and, and what some of the tour pilots up there are seeing, some of the glaciers on the mountain, that sort of thing. And and how pilots can really get involved. Well, Katie, thank you uh, so much for joining us. I appreciate it. Well, Ian, it's, it's a pleasure to be here. So tell us about yourself and a little bit about your background. Well, I am a pilot here in Alaska. I moved up in uh, 2004 to be a flight instructor and had the pleasure to fly with you back then to get the float rating done. And yeah, yeah, that was really fun. And uh, yeah, things have not changed a whole lot for us here in Alaska. You know, we have built our house and raising our kids and we have my husband's a hunting and fishing guide and, you know, I'm the pilot of the family and it's really uh, super privileged to have a super cub that I've owned since 2005. So I don't instruct anymore, but I use my airplane a lot for aerial photography. Okay. And so Alaska is a big place, obviously, with a a, a much varied terrain and, and weather and everything else. So talk a little bit about where you fly. Sure. So I'm here in Talkeetna, which is a wonderful aviating community. We have the Talkeetna State Airport is a pretty bustling environment. We are at the kind of the base, you know, we're, we're 75 miles away from the Alaska range. We're about a two and a half hour drive into the interior from Anchorage. We're, you know, kind of off the main road system. We're on the, off of a spur road. And so people really use airplanes a lot where we live. 
So you're in the shadow of, of Denali then? Correct. And so obviously you have you have that range, but also, you know, it's it's maybe flatter other than uh, obviously Denali and, and the park than people might expect. I mean, wide sort of river valleys and things like that, right? It really is. And it's, it's just an almost amazing place to fly because you have this Susitna River Valley. It's this huge expanse and there's really one highway, the Parks Highway, that cuts through, and that highway goes from Anchorage up to Fairbanks, and it goes up through Healy, and that's where people can drive up to the park. And so it's this huge um, river valley with a lot of lakes. It's wonderful for float flying. There's a lot of really amazing rivers that join here in Talkeetna. You've got the Chalitna River, the Susitna River, and the Talkeetna River all come together here in Talkeetna. And I believe the Athabasca name for Talkeetna is where three rivers meet. And so I park my airplane at the Talkeetna Village Airstrip, which is really a, a, a lucky chance to have a good friend who has a piece of property there. And we watch each other's airplanes and so forth. But it's it's quite a, a neat little place. If anyone ever has flown into the Talkeetna Village Airstrip, they probably will never forget it. So obviously with, with the glaciers and, you know, the rivers and, and the lakes even, I guess, you you guys are kind of a unique vantage point to see climate change. And, and that's something that you wrote about recently in AOPA Pilot. And so I wanted to talk a little bit about that today. I mean, we know climate change has become kind of a political issue in most of the U.S. And I'm curious what the attitude is like in Alaska overall. Well, you know, it is a, it's a very interesting topic. You know, a lot of, I would say, you know, a lot of it is who you're hanging out with. And <laughs> so, you know, putting that out front, you know, I find that my peer group and so forth is, is it's very much a hot topic. I was just on the phone with a, a friend who lives over in Trapper Creek. She's lived here for over 40 years. And the climate change is, is just a real hot topic because people are just noticing how they can't do things as they used to in, back in the, you know, years ago. And one of the things that she brought up was that the river's are freezing later. Um, historically, they used to always have their friends from Talkeetna walk over the Susitna River, which is a really wide river. You know, it's it's huge. And so they used to be able to walk back and forth between Talkeetna and Trapper Creek for Thanksgiving. And <laughs> rather than do the big drive around, which might take an hour or so, they used to have, you know, the snowshoes and, and do that as a tradition. So people like that are wonderful resources and you know, a lot of other folks are farmers and, and so forth. The growing season is longer and they are able to, you know, have things a little bit longer on both ends, whether it be springtime planting or the harvesting in the fall. And then there's the aviators that see the landscape. And that is what I brought up in the article, Climate Matters. And it's really notable to see that just right here in Talkeetna, the beetle kill has been a really something that just started coming up and reaching us this far north, maybe just in the last three or four years. And it's it's kind of sad to see, you know, some of those beautiful areas get hit with it because it just turns the terrain from the green to a rusty color. And that beetle kill, you know, is not necessarily, scientists don't link it to, you know, it's not like a proven fact. If you talk to foresters, Jason Moan of the Forest Department in Anchorage is like, it's not proven but you know the warmer winters are enabling these beetles to survive winters and do more havoc and more, more damage on these trees because of the warmer temperatures and so that's been a real noticeable thing that we've seen 
and you know you see your favorite lake that you go up to with a little island and there's a spruce tree on it is now dead and it just I couldn't believe um, the summer of 2019 was so hot and we had such high water you know in all the rivers because the glaciers were melting so drastically and it was really amazing experience to be able to go up in the super cub and go up firsthand and see you know the toe of the ruth glacier and see these pools of water forming and also just high water from just the, the glacier melting and not having a single rain event for a month long was was just really odd hmm. So, yeah, I mean, I, I think a lot of us think of climate change as something that's, you know, it's generational, it's multi-generational, you know, hundreds of years it's going to take. But, you know, especially when you live in an extreme climate like you do, it seems like things are happening and, and changing at a really rapid pace. And, of course, uh, pilots are really in a unique position to be able to see some of that. And so you mentioned a little bit the glaciers. So I guess let, let's talk about the glaciers, Talking it being a, a base for a lot of the climbers in Denali. And, and you know, glaciers obviously dictate one of the ways that, that dictate the season. And so that's something that the businesses can actually track and see, you know, how, how long of a season is it that we can actually operate on in this environment? Well, you know, it's, it is really changed over the years. And, you know, some of the main operators here, people have probably heard of K2. They've heard of um, Talkeetna Air Taxi is, is really popular with the climbers for climber drop-offs. And um, the owner, Paul Roderick, and I have had several conversations over the years about just that, that the season has shortened every year. They're having to sometimes at base camp up at the Cahilton Glacier is at 7,200 feet. And that's the, that's the main spot where base camp Lisa sets up and the climbers go there. And even in 2000, you know, 17, 18, 19, they were having to move that base camp towards the end of the season up to a higher elevation because the warmer temperatures were causing more crevasses to be opening up and more hazardous for aircraft to land. Hmm. And so what about, you know, you mentioned you've, you've gone up and photographed some of the stuff in, in the pools. I mean, I, I remember it's been uh, many years since I've been in Alaska, maybe like 15, but I know even as a, even on the ground, I mean, you can go up to some of these glaciers and they'll have signs of, you know, how they're, how they're receding. And it's, it's really uh, just in the blink of an eye. And so you must be seeing some things even locally as well uh, from the air. Oh, you bet. You know, this this past summer, I did a lot of flying with my daughter in the back of the Cub, and she's 13 years old. And, and so I'm really trying to share with her the, my passion of photography. And and we, we did several flights just going up into that area. And what you're seeing is the walls of the glaciers, you know, are collapsing. And you, you can see how active those zones are. It's like looking down at a, a slushy. There's just, you know, ice that are just peeling off the edges, and then you can see the, just, it, it does, it looks like a 7-Eleven slushy in some spots. And the headwaters of the Ruth River were very active even this past summer with, you know, the, the melting going on. And it, it wasn't as extreme as the record um, summer of 2019, but it, it was quite noticeable in just seeing, you know, the, the pools of water. When you get higher up into the Ruth Glacier, you know, getting up into the upper areas, the, the blue, the, the really notable blue pools were really noticeable were to a point where some of the pilots were making jokes about being able to land a float plane up in these pools. <laughs> so, you know, the, the visuals are, are just really noticeable in the glaciers. And we also went over to the Cahilton Glacier. And just from one year to the next, the beetle kill, which is really noticeable from the air, had reached all the way up to the toe of the Cahilton Glacier. 
And that was something that we had not seen so much the season before. So that was really a, a notable you know, difference in that beetle kill is going all the way up into Denali National Park. It's kind of just the beginnings of it, I think. Yeah. Wow. And so it's it's obviously observations one way, but then scientists, and you mentioned this in the story, I mean, they're using, it's it's really interesting, I think, the way that aviation and, and climate science have intersected just from a tool standpoint. You interviewed a climatologist at the University of Alaska, Brian Brechneider, who's using some some aviation data sources in, in some of his climate research. You bet. You know, I, I was lucky enough to have a conversation with Brian just last Friday, and we talked about... Um, you know, what, you know, what trends that they're seeing. And I asked him, I said, well, how was 2020 different from 2019? And, and he had a really good point he made. He said that the, while for Alaskans, it may not have seemed like out of the ordinary warm summer for the year of 2020, it was indeed warmer than normal. And that people are just getting kind of more used to the new normal, which is, you know, a warmer summer. So I think you've mentioned a statistic of something like it was, could have been like the 17th or 18th warmest summer on record. So while we're getting used to this and it doesn't seem extreme, you know, it really is this, this warming trend that does not seem to be reversing. Hmm. And so there are others that, that I know are using aviation or are involved. And in, I mean, although I guess in Alaska, it's like most people use aviation in some way or another, but Rick Toman, I know, is another one, another scientist uh, who works for NOAA, I guess, that, that you had worked with on the story. Oh, you bet. You know, and, and he joined the conversation on Friday as well. And Rick Toman, he's an amazing forecaster. He has an amazing history in Alaska. In fact, he received the 2020 NOAA Distinguished Career Award this past May. And uh, he works with the Alaska Center for Climate Assessment. He's a climate specialist with the University of Alaska, uh, the Alaska Center for Assessment and Policy and he had, uh, you know, he talked about just what the importance of just how we're just the adaptability of what we have now. And, you know, he works a lot with native populations as well and, you know, tribal communities and so forth. And, you know, he, the big point that really stuck out in our conversation was how important it, it is that we're learning the adaptability like right now. And, and so much of that is happening with villages, um, even having to be moved because permafrost is melting so much that they're having to relocate villages, getting them further away from the coastal regions and uh, flooding events from rain events and whatnot. It's just a, a very, you know, that, that they are really seeing climate change. You know, you asked earlier in the conversation of what are Alaskans saying about climate change and that the native groups are really, they're, they're really feeling it hands-on because their root cellars are thawing out and it's harder to store, you know, their meat and they depend so much on, on that sustenance living. Hmm. What about, I mean, you know, you mentioned a little bit about your flying and the fact that you're, you've been taking more photographs and, and observing more, but obviously there's all sorts of other impacts like, uh, you know, fire seasons. So what, what else are you seeing with your flying that, that you think maybe it's changing because of the climate or you're anticipating more changes because of it? I really notice I, it, it is changing and, and I can see, you know, in the forest and, and you know, you might mention that my background for five years, I worked as a news reporter for KTNA here in Talkeetna. It was a wonderful radio station, and it was just a great opportunity for me to. I was kind of like the flying reporter, and it was great, you know, because I got to get aerial photos and easily post them on their Facebook page and, and show people what was going on with the fires as the fires were burning. And so 2019 was just a really scary 
fire not too far from Talkeetna. It was located more near Sunshine, and that fire happened right around July 4th time, and it was one of those fires where it just got out of control. The winds kicked in. There's all that dead beetle kill forest, and, and people were trying to still drive south on the park's highway, and, and then the fire jumped the highway, and it got really scary quick. Thankfully, there was no loss of life there, but it was a very, you know, today we, I was just flying and I took photographs of that area. And it's, it's these, you know, people's whole homes have been just completely, you know, cleared away. And as it's happening in Colorado right now. And so now you're seeing people rebuilding and how long that takes for people to rebuild and not everyone is able to rebuild. And so, you know, some people are having to live in trailers and it's, it's kind of a grim situation for a lot of families out there. So I guess I want, you know, to end on a, on a happier note <laughs> for somebody who hasn't been to the area, tell us a, a little bit about, I don't know, great, you know, if they want to come to, to Anchorage or even Talkeetna, it's like the type of flying they can do, something they can see, folks they can fly with, that sort of thing. Oh, sure. You know, and, and you know, it, it is easy to get down and out about, you know, really studying climate change. You can tell in my tone of voice, I actually had to take a, a step away and they even have, you know, for reporters and so forth and people that are covering climate change, they've even had services of like, hey, how are you doing? Because it's it's a hard thing for people to really, you know, wrap their minds around. And it is a little bit grim and, and you know, seeing what we've seen in Colorado. But it's for me, you know, I kind of switched gears a little bit and decided that I was going to really portray the beauty of nature. And so it kind of got me into starting my aerial photography business. And so I even have a, a website, katywritergallery.com, in which I'm posting photos of what the beauty that I see here in Alaska. And I think that really is an important thing to celebrate the beauty of the natural world so that people can see the value of protecting it. With that said, you know, there, Alaska has right here, is such a remarkable area. There's a lot of flight seen right out of Talkeetna Airport. We have, you know, K2, there's Talkeetna Air Taxi, there's Sheldon Air Service, and also into Alaska are those that are on the field. And then you have other companies like Denali Hiking Company. Billy Fitzgerald has a float plane business that he does hiking trips into the Talkeetna Mountains, just an amazing trips that people can do. Um, and he flies a Super Cub so people get that Super Cub flight. And I find that people really enjoy the one-on-one in the Super Cub. It's hard to beat, but all those other tour companies do a wonderful job. The pilots are often very knowledgeable in the history of the glaciers. And, and often you'll find that they have, you know, a climate change spiel to their flight tours of the glaciers. And without, can't forget to mention Don Lee of Alaska Floats and Skis. And, you know, his flight school has ski training starting in March. And so Something that you might want to come back up for, Ian, is to get your ski um, add-on rating is just wonderful. It's a way to, um, you know, get back into the small airplane and fly those Alaska um, mountains. The uh, area that he has picked out has a little cabin that they have there so that if they get stuck, they at least have a place to duck into. But the Swisher Glacier is a really remarkable place for learning to do the ski flying on glaciers. Very cool. Well, Katie, thank you so much for the time and, and for joining us. And I really appreciate the story. I think it's a, obviously a very important topic and one that people need to pay attention to because it's like, even if they, they maybe can't help in Alaska, they there are other types of flying they can do to, I think, document this. And, you know, we just have such a unique perspective as pilots um, to be able to offer, I think. And so it was, a, it was the story was a, did a great job of, of bringing that up. 
Well, Ian, thank you so much for, for publishing that story for AOP. I was really happy that you guys took it on and it was a, a fun project to do. And I've enjoyed talking with you here today. All right, David. So, you know, I know that there's pipeline pilots and others that, you know, they do observation and it's really detailed and obviously they, you know, it's very systematic, but it's, it's cool to know that as a pilot, you can, you know, you can start to catalog this stuff and, and, and make a difference over time. I think that's great. Well, I'll tell you what, it's interesting to be part of the GA scene and folks, you know, we do so much, especially during natural disasters and things like that, but there's a lot going on on an everyday level that just highlights GA. I'm so glad you caught up with Katie. That was cool. Yeah. Real quick tease to the next guest. We're, we think we're going to have big city Brian Wright, who is a, a aviation cargo hauling country musician. <laughs> and he is a cool guy. We're going to try to catch up with him in between his treks to overseas to Asia. And actually, he's stopping by Alaska this weekend. I hope to catch catch up with him for the next Hangar Talk. And it's all because we have just published the AOPA Top 100 Flying Songs. It's a playlist that's available on Pandora. But there'll be more about that later. Yeah, really looking forward to talking about that next time. But that's all the time we have for this week. I'm Ian Twombly. Our editor is Austin Hansen. And, of course, I'm David Toulis. Don't forget, you can find us at aopa.org slash hangertalk. You can get Alexa to play Hangar Talk. We're on Apple Podcasts, uh, the Google Podcast site, wherever you get your podcasts. And don't forget that playlist, too. All right, we'll see you next time. See you next time, Ian. Hangar Talk from AOPA. Your freedom to fly.